I don't have to do anything but talk about the real Jesus that I knew to always be true, who can hold my doubts, who can hold my anger, who can hold all the complexities of who I am, and love me and say, you are so called to this. My name is Jonah. I'm a pastor, activist, community organizer, and follower of Jesus. I love the Bible, but I've been told it doesn't love me back. Enter the peacock. An ancient symbol of abundance, the peacock is more than beautiful. It serves as a guard animal around the world because it eats poisonous spiders and snakes. How does it survive? Peacocks can break down poison, get to the good stuff, and emerge fed and strengthened. Some say this is how the peacock gets its beautiful iridescent feathers. Join me and my guests as we read the Bible in the spirit of the peacock, re-encounter nourishing scriptures that have been poisoned by hate and ignorance, break down toxic theology, and get to the good stuff. Emerge fed and strengthened with a beautiful, iridescent faith. Welcome to Jonah and the Peacock, a podcast about poison, healing, and the Bible. Hey everybody, it's Jonah and you have made it to the final episode of season one of Jonah and the Peacock. It has been such a thrill to make this season and to have these conversations with with incredible people uh, willing to be vulnerable and real and share their insights with so many others. If you loved season one and want a season two, please leave a review, send us some feedback. Let us know what you're longing for still at the end of season one, what you'd like to hear more of, who you'd like to hear from, and uh, we can keep making this together. For the final episode of this season, I sat down with my co-pastor, my co-parent, the love of my life, Cameron Malachi Overton. And, you know, when it comes to Cameron, I know his story. I've heard it in bits and pieces, uh, sometimes repeatedly at dinner parties and interviews and in late night conversations together. But hearing it all together again, still floors me. And I think it's incredible that hearing his story, after hearing so many stories through Jonah and the Peacock, trying to elevate these uh, different, more marginalized voices, there are things that that start to ring more true. There are ideas that, that kind of rise to the surface, experiences that don't seem so isolated anymore. I think of the ways that I, in season, in the episode one, described negotiating with God and saying, all right, God, you've got six months. And, and here comes Cameron, another trans person, another closeted trans person at that time, negotiating with God, saying, I'm going to give you one more shot. And it has these parameters. And this is how much I have left to give. I think of the episode that, that Derek uh, came on and, and shared you know, what it meant to be um, a young black man experiencing suffering and and being closeted and saying, okay, God, I clearly I was made to suffer. Um, and, and Cameron echoes those same sentiments um, as another suffering young black man in the closet. And and I see that there are these truths that, that build up and glow more brightly with, with more voices that we just haven't heard from 
in the church enough. These truths of experience that are obscured by the narrowness of the dominant lens. And I'm so filled with gratitude that that people have been willing to share their stories. And for me, I just, I can't get enough of it. And I want more of my understanding of God, more of my understanding of church, of humanity, of community to come from voices like this. And yet even with those little truths that are are built up over time, the ways that you hear the echoes of other people's truths in Cameron's story, Cameron is uh, unique. Cameron is singular. Cameron, I can't talk about Cameron because I will simply gush. Um, I'm in love with him. That's, you know, I married him for a reason. So I will let him speak for himself. Um, but we do love to talk to each other. That's how we fell in love. It's how we fall in love over and over again, talking theology and liberation and possibility. And so if you want to hear more of the two of us, we did decide shortly after recording this that we were going to give it a go. Uh, We're starting a new weekly podcast uh, that you can subscribe to now. The trailer is up. Um, This will be a a shorter form, um, lighter, a little more freewheeling experience that we are calling Christian Queries. Uh, where two Christian queers answer your queries about Christianity. Like I said, the trailer is up wherever you are listening to this now, and you can subscribe or follow to be the first to know when full episodes drop. Just remember in your search to keep the queer in queries. Without further ado, here is Cameron Malachi Overton. some stories to tell and as you know this podcast is about telling one's own story and thinking about how that really shapes how we interpret and hear and tell the stories of the bible so Cameron what are some of the identities or aspects of your story that you think most profoundly shape how you experience scripture Ooh, these are uh, questions that I get asked a lot. So, I mean, right off the bat, I am a black person. Um, I am queer. I am trans. And I am a person who grew up in rural Wisconsin, um, moved immediately outside of rural Wisconsin to the city. Um, and I've been out now for, what, five, five years? Four years? Like out of the closet? Out of out of being trans. You have been, I've out been as a trans, trans man for yeah, five years. For five years. Um, you know, came out as queer before for that a few years before. Um, but like wow, did it take a lot to get to that point? Um, but I you know, I always just like to start off by like who who am I? I have a, a desire to talk to people not only in some of the the spaces of who I am, who I see to be marginalized, but I also want to be a person who's able to recognize some privileges that I have as well. Um, And I think that that's an important practice for all of us to do. So uh, that's where I'll start. But I think I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to tell my story as 
succinctly as possible. And so I guess I could I could try to do that Get if that's what it. you're looking for. What do you got? <laughs> All right. Sweet baby Cameron was uh, born a baby model. A baby model. <laughs> That's true. This is the thing. I know all the dirt on you, so. Oh, no. <laughs> this is going to be less succinct than I thought. All right. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> different, different story for a different podcast. Oh, we'll man. We'll start our own podcast. Okay. How about that? All Just right. you and me. All right. So. Separate project. Okay. On some real. So, I was born um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and... One of the things that I always joke about when I tell my story is that it is surprising that I wasn't born like in a church, right? So my mom was someone who was leading music. My grandpa was, you know, a a deacon. My grandma was running a bunch of children's ministry. We went to to church multiple times a week. And I I have distinct memories of being itty bitty, being sat on a, a chair or like a stool with my mom and singing songs. I think it was like Sandy Patty and the whatever kids club stuff like we would sing songs in church and everybody be like oh what a beautiful family and um and so church was always a part of my story I never had a thought that church wouldn't be a part of my story um but as I grew up I started around that same time that they're making me sing songs in front of the church at three I'm also realizing that there are some things in my heart that are going on that don't necessarily seem to fit all of the things that I'm being taught in church. And I say that because I'm three. Um, and, and a lot of people ask the question, like, well, when did you know that you were trans? And it was like, I was three years old, and I knew that something uh, was different about me. And because I had some of that that different energy, I asked a lot of questions. And the thing that the church doesn't like to do is answer questions for children specifically, but answer questions that are are difficult. And so, you know, uh, when I was little, I changed my name. Um, I would go and like play with other kids and tell them that my name was different. I, you know, was assigned female at birth. And so, People on the outside would see me and think that I was a girl, Um, but I was often mistaken as a little boy because I cut my hair, I was in sports, including wrestling, and I was the best wrestler ever, and I did all of the things to to really tell everyone around me that I was a boy, Um, and I, you know, was labeled things like you know, tomboy and, oh, she will grow out of this phase or whatever. But I think what what occurred was me asking the questions and no one really knowing how to deal with that other than to, like, place labels that they knew best. Meanwhile, I'm also hearing in church distinct messages around uh, LGBTQ folk being abominations. And I use that real word because that's the word I heard, right? Um, And as a young person trying to figure out, wait a second, 
Uh, first of all, I have no idea what trans means, like zero understanding of what that means. I know who I am. I also am starting to understand later, like who I might be attracted to, but I'm not allowed to be attracted to those people. Um, but I heard words like abomination or um, sexual immorality and things like that being all twisted up to be meaning LGBTQ folk. And so there were tons of pieces of me that I had to set aside or what I thought to be pieces of me that I was intentionally setting aside for Jesus. Meanwhile, still asking questions like, wait a second, so are you saying that God created people and then there's only a select few of us who are the chosen people and that everyone else goes to hell? Well, Cameron, if you read the Bible, it's very clear that... Blah, 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 blah. Well, that doesn't seem right. Like, why is God creating people to just go to hell? Um, you know, and, and I was that annoying kid that was asking all these questions. And no one seemed to be able to, to answer my questions in a, in a way that really felt good to me. And so I think around the time, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of um, family issues that I also had. I just want to recognize that and I think there were there's some traumas that truly happened to me not at the beginning you know but but more uh later around like fifth grade or so and uh it was around that time that I think I also started to wrestle with just identity as as a black kid in rural Wisconsin uh having people saying really racist things to me um on top of that having people you know call LGBTQ folk an abomination on top of that having no answers to questions on top of that all this this trauma that started to occur and I got really really um depressed and it was around that time that Again, it was kind of like, hey, I've been in church my whole life. I thought God was supposed to be here. And where the heck are you, right? <clears throat> and this is a time where I started getting mad at God. Still going to church because I have to. But like mad at God and questioning whether or not God is even real. And I think it was around that time that, you know, I'm, I'm going to disclose that at this point I it was such a deep depression that I I was going to attempt suicide and you know there's a whole story around that and I'm not going to get in too many of those details but I believe deeply that like God showed up in a huge way in that moment uh, where I was very very close to completing that and <clears throat> It was around that time (laughs) that I was like, okay, well, God wants you here on this earth, but your lot in life must be to just be one of those people that are here to suffer and go to hell. (laughs) And so now, like, I'm still like here, like mad at God asking like, what the heck is this all about? Like, what is life about? Why are these people like saying that they're happy, but they're not. No one can be really real with me. Like, this this church life is a scam. All these things are a scam. And still wrestling with this fact that I, like, read these stories of Jesus suffering and, and, and saying that Jesus came to earth to be with me, and also, like, it doesn't feel like it. 
So I started, <laughs> I started uh, definitely getting to become friends with people that uh, didn't necessarily like the church. Um, and I think I started to kind of tarnish my name in my community as like no longer the like uppity Christian, but a Christian who also is like doing all these other bad things. So, you know, lots of Christians have nice names like, you know, like un not real Christian and things like that. But I started to, to really think about how alcohol was a nice thing and marijuana was a nice thing and it kind of shut down some of those things that were happening in my brain that the church wasn't able to like sit with me in and so by the time I graduate from high school I'm like I am out of this town please Lord God get me out of this town there's no one here that is like me I need to get to a city where um, I might find other folks who are more like me and what was interesting about that moment was it was kind of me testing God almost, I want to say, because I said to God <laughs> before, after, or right before I went to college, I was like, okay, I'm going to give this Christian life one more shot, like one more really good shot. And so I'm going to go to college. I'm going to find Christian friends. I'm going to like give this a real shot. And so I get to college, I get dropped off. Um, and I look around me and I know no one. I'm in a big city like I wanted. Well, not a big city. It was like a medium city um, like I wanted. And, okay, I'm going to go find the Christian people. So I go and I find a campus ministry. That didn't go as planned. <laughs> so I got really... I got really involved with this campus ministry, right? And at the same time, started to actually find those people that I was searching for, which were these people who would who would look at me and say, Cameron, are you gay? And I'd be like, no, 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 no. But so at this at this point you're still basically closeted even to yourself, right? Oh yes. Oh, like just yes. like in deep denial. Oh yes. Yes. Despite like, overwhelming evidence. So <laughs> much evidence. Like like ridiculous amounts of evidence. I've had uh, a a best friend who I stay the night with. Italic's best friend. Yes, who I'm like, oh, this this song is not for you, of course. You know, on, on this mixtape I've made for you. <laughs> you know, like overwhelming evidence of like, you. I know exactly who, who I was. And in fact, going back, I remember the day that I decided I was going to fit in a box in middle school. Um, I had actually switched from, so I went to a, a Christian uh, elementary school and, you know, was basically very much me in that school, moved to um, a town, an, another town, and uh, what was that, like fifth grade or so? So by seventh grade, I remember the day in seventh grade that I was like, I am sick of people making fun of me for like how I dress, how I look. Because it was too masculine. Yes. You know, and and I remember showing up wearing something and having uh, another person say, oh, you kind of look like a girl today. Mm -hmm. Huh. 
And I remember that that was the day that I was like, okay, I'm going to jump in this box and I'm going to jump in this box really hard, right? Like, I, you will not know that I am, quote unquote, because I don't struggle with this, but at the time it felt like struggling, like that I'm struggling with my identity in any kind of way. And so, my goodness, I was, you know, I had makeup on, I had my hair done, and I, uh, of course, played basketball and all these things, but I, you know, was... Uh, a princess in the freaking like you go through towns and you sit on one of those big old floats and like wave at people princess situation right like I'm jumping in hard here y'all and because I remember what it was like to not want people to see the the fullness of who I was because it wasn't acceptable um so yeah so by the time I hit college and people are like oh but are you gay and I'm like no I would never, but I don't hate gay people, of course, because I'm a Christian, you know? Did you have a heart for gay people? Of at course. Any <laughs> I mean, it's so mad, you know, angering that people would hate people for who they are. I just have, a, I just have such a heart for people who struggle <laughs> with that. Yeah. Yep. Yes. I was one of those. Yep. And, uh, and in fact, when I got to college, I, um, I became friends with some folks and it was like this shock factor where one of the friends I didn't know was a gay man. And so he was kind of like, oh, I had a date the other night. And I'm like, oh, who, who was she? And he laughed and was like, uh, you know I'm gay, right? And I actually had a like bodily reaction because I did not know he was gay. And this was the first person that I was kind of like friends with who was like living out exactly who he was. And all of that internalized homophobia that I had was smacking me right in the face and in college. And so on the one hand, people are finally starting to see me for who I am. And on the other hand, I'm having to like deal with this internalized homophobia that, uh, I was holding on to because it kept me safe where I had been from, but it's definitely not who I wanted to be. But I couldn't reconcile that with being also a Christian. Mm. And so that is about the time where I stopped going to the um, campus ministry. I got really into, um, you know, alcohol, drugs. I was still doing things, um, at school, you know, um, but I think I, I was truly trying to find who I was at the same time as continuing to kind of dampen down who I was. Um, and, and that depression and those kind of things definitely started to kind of come back to life. Um, so, College was a a weird time where it, it was really difficult, and I and I think I'm a really I'm a person who could mask and hide really really well with those around me. And when when I kind of tell my story, some of the the college friends that I had um, who have heard my story now come up to me and are just like, "Wow!" Like I had no idea that's what you were dealing with because you hid it so well when I saw you. And I'm like, absolutely, you know, and then I go and I isolate 
and, you know, drink by myself and do drugs by myself because I'm so depressed. Um, and I would get up and I would go to class. I'd still be very high and help me get it through Spanish, I think. But, um, you know, I, I just, I hated who I was. And there was a specific night in college that I got just, I, yeah, drugs, alcohol was just, it was out of hand that day. Um, and I remember kind of being knocked out of reality a little bit, actually, um, for a couple days. And that was really scary. Mm. Um, and I l- remember distinctly looking in the mirror and screaming at God and and just saying, like, I don't know why I'm here. I know that this isn't what I am created to be. Um and looking at myself, kind of asking, like, who are you? Like, you used to be this other person who would be, quote-unquote, on fire for God and also, like, struggling, but, like, God was always a part of who I was, and now I'm looking at myself not even able to recognize myself anymore. And I remember that was the day that, (laughs) I don't know why I keep trying this thing, but I was like, okay, I'm done doing drugs and doing alcohol and trying all these other things. I know that God needs to be a part of of this like healing process for me. So I guess I'll go back to this campus ministry. Why? I don't know, but I did it, right? Because that's what I knew what was, I knew best. I knew that that was something that, uh, had given me hope in the past that had given me like uh, a guideline really um, to at least not be this other person that I knew also wasn't who I wanted to be. So it was one more year of being a part of this campus ministry and I was like, aha, I know. I will dedicate my whole life, in fact, to God. I, when I came to college, I only said that I would kind of give my life to God. <laughs> So I will dedicate my actual whole life to God and I will raise support and come on staff with this campus ministry that will bring me to Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and do inner city ministry for the Lord. And so I did. I raised support. I one once again closeted all of those pieces that I was starting to kind of figure out in college and said that that's what I had to do for for Jesus. And so got to Milwaukee and very quickly was like, "Oh my okay, all right, I have a confession everyone. <laughs> I am so so gay." <laughs> I am so gay. In fact, I'm so gay, I'm in love with this girl right here. And I know we're living together, and I don't know what to do. Oh, my God, I'm so gay. So, they handled it so well. This girl, so this, so just to clarify, you were living in a house full of girls affiliated with a Christian campus ministry, <laughs> sort of missionary yes. project. Yes. And you and another housemate in this project were hooking up and in love and absolutely yes and And so that was the revelation that came to the rest of your (laughs) community yes and you know i there may have been some signs before (laughs) that moment (laughs) for them like they could have picked up on it you know maybe maybe i could have too you know i don't know but yeah 
So they handled it with such grace and vulnerability and understanding. I'm sensing sarcasm. Very sarcastic. I was immediately fired. Um, I was moved out of that house, put in a house with my quote-unquote mentor who could teach me what a godly family looked like while they, well, actually, they put me on leave first, and they put me in this house. They moved me out because I couldn't be around any of the other girls, of course, um, because I would use my sexual wiles to get them all to fall in love with me. It worked on me. Yeah! And so... um, I had to move into this mentor's house. They, like, literally, no one was allowed to talk to me. Like, I couldn't go over there. I couldn't do anything but just, like, sit here. And then they had one conversation with me uh, that said, hey, do you think you're still gay? And I was like, yep, that's why I came to you. Uh, That's why I came to you for the quote-unquote help. (laughs) And they flew in an HR person from out of state to have another one conversation with me where she also was like, hey, you still gay? And I was like, yep, that's why I came to y'all for the help. And the next day I was fired. It's like they've never dealt with this before. I mean, like, this wasn't wasn't the 40s. Like, I... Uh, what year was this? That you're the wrong person to ask. You, I'm uh, very bad at you years. You don't know what year this would have been. 2011 ish. Within. Yeah. Yeah. Within Ten the years. last 15 years. Sure. And, uh, but it just seems like they were entirely ill-equipped to handle it. Even even by terrible, hyper-conservative, queerphobic standards. Like they didn't, they didn't. Uh, they didn't push you into reparative therapy and you've said elsewhere that like you would have tried to do something like that. Well, and that's how vulnerable I was at that moment. Um, because no one had, had even mentioned that kind of thing to me, um, until after, of course I'll get to that, but like, and I should clarify for anybody who doesn't know reparative therapy is the very misleading toxic name for abusive, um, uh, spaces that try and de-gay gay people, um, you know, detransition trans people, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I was so vulnerable at the time because I truly like when I say, "Hey, I wanted to give my life to Jesus." I meant that. Like, this wasn't me trying to just like be both things like I meant it I meant like I'm giving everything to Jesus I'm raising support I am going to do this job because this is what I'm called to do like I believed that with everything inside of me and so at that moment I was like I know that this is a barrier for me doing this work that I'm called to and so if if they had said okay we have a plan. You're going to go to this reparative therapy. We're going to pray the gay away from you. I would have I would have done it at that point. And so this was the worst time of my life. Like this moment, you know, I I mentioned all these other things, but like I would say this is this is the worst time of my life. And that's how vulnerable I was and I would have done it. And so thank you Jesus. Right. Like I I honestly like when I think back, I'm like, how lucky am I that they were so ignorant and ill equipped and like just were so scared of this topic that they just wanted to get rid of me. And and that made it made that moment feel horrible. But now I'm like, that was a provision from God because I could have been really harmed. 
and I would have I would have done it. I would have gone all in. And so, you know, now again, I, I just I, I praise Jesus for that time. Um, but it, it was a horrible time, right? This was the only community I had, um, and th- that community was also kind of intertwined with the, my church community. So, of course, my church started to get involved, and that's actually when I started to get introduced to some of this kind of, I wouldn't call it reparative therapy because I don't want to take away from uh, the experiences that some other folks have, have truly had. Um, but there were, were these these Bible studies around sexual purity that were very, um, that chapters and chapters and chapters of the book that you would have to go through with a mentor and like all these things, like they had, um, you know, what is quote unquote being sexually pure and, and saying, and, and I'm the only like gay one in the room. And so everybody's like, what do you think Cameron? You know, because they all were in on it, trying to like rid me of this, this thing. Um, and at that time I kind of had lost everything. Right. And so I went to this group and it was in that group that I just started getting snarky. Like, being like, nope, this doesn't speak to me at all. <laughs> and they'd be like, how can it not, though? And I'm like, because Jesus is good. You know, like, I, just like, super snarky, just not taking any of their crap. And so quickly, I also was kind of like, not necessarily asked not to come back to church, but like, you are no longer allowed to lead here. You're no, you know, I'm, I'm a musician and a singer and, and I was on the, in the band. And so it's like, you're no longer in a season to lead here. Right. So quit, you know, really quietly, I just kind of like left that church. And at that time I left church completely. Um, I moved, you know, again and, and kind of found myself out in a little bit of a, a suburb of Milwaukee, just kind of being like, I just want to be alone. Um, and yet God is still there kind of being like, no, 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 this story isn't over. And so, you know, at that time, I randomly just like met through some, some other people, um, that were like, you know, I understand that this wasn't really your your way of going about things, but you should meet this other person who kind of deals with people like you, you know? Um, and I met with this person, and finally, um, she was the first person who just, like, I was sitting across the table, and she just starts crying. And I'm like, ooh, I'm uncomfortable. Why are you crying? This is my story. But she was like, has anyone just said how incredibly sad this is? How incredibly hurt you must feel? And and she, that changed everything. Because no one had just sat with me and said, this was really hard. And from that, I was really honestly like, and we have very different stances of where, you know, people should end up in, in regard to LGBTQ inclusion in the church. But we got to a point where I was actually able to start dissecting all of the harm that had happened, all of my identities. I got into therapy, <laughs> and I came out as trans, and I was like, I okay, thank God we can finally talk about this, that a lot of this has nothing to do with who I find attractive. It has 
everything to do with like who I am as an actual person. So I came out as trans and then I found a church who was like really quote unquote wrestling with what to do with LGBTQ inclusion and who cared about justice at the same time, which was really important to me as a black person. And then I met this person uh, named Jonah Overton and my whole entire life. Were they named Jonah Overton yet? Oh, right. No. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I knew their name was Jonah Overton. Oh, in your heart. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't know I was going to take your name. Uh, that's, that's true. That's true. Um, but I met, I met you, and I was already back kind of doing ministry. And, like, you know, this is what God has called me to. What in the world? Like, where can I, where can I do this? Right. And so I'm, I'm in this other church really doing good ministry. And then I met you and, and saw a vision for a church that could hold all of this at the beginning. Right. Like this isn't something that we are trying at Zao MK church to like add. It is who we are. Right. And so finally there is a space where I don't have to explain to you why I think LGBTQ inclusion is, is important in the church. It just is. I don't have to explain to you my identity as a trans person because the pastor is trans. Right. Like I don't have to do anything but talk about the real Jesus that I knew to always be true, who can hold my doubts, who can hold my anger, who can hold all the complexities of who I am and love me and say, you are so called to this all in one. And that was revolutionary, life-changing, and here I am on a podcast talking about my story to who knows how many people. All right. That's the succinct version. That's the succinct version. I, you did way better than me. I took a whole, I took like literally the entire episode for mine. <laughs> um, but I know that that because we were tight on time, you had to kind of rush to the end a little bit. And and I just, I want to draw out a little bit of what you're your experience was because you've been through a lot of different churches. Yes. And, and you described the churches that had no capacity at all to engage your gender or sexuality. Um, but I know that you've had some additional experiences too, that were, that were uh, frankly more complicated because there were people who genuinely loved you, who wanted to, who like desired to understand you, who tried to understand you and also still didn't. Um, or didn't, or didn't create the space that you're describing that that we aim to create now at Zao. Can you just talk a little bit about what that was like, that kind of in between space? Because I think that that's a lot more common for people to experience than a place that's like radically queer led and trans led like Zao is. Yeah, and and it is such a complicated feeling an answer to answer that question because without that kind of church I would not be who I am today and it wasn't enough for me and the reason it's not enough is because the more you finally are uh, able to be exactly who you are for me the less time I had to continue to have the conversation about who I am right and so 
at a church who does like a third way thing or like a middle thing where we're all just trying to like get around a table and know each other and, and know that diversity is here and everyone is quote unquote welcome. Yeah. So disagreement on, on the question of the validity of queerness and transness in, in God's intended creation. Disagreement is not only tolerated, but actually celebrated there, right? Yes. And so, and the idea around that is like, if we all just get together and see the humanity in one another, we will all just be family. And I think that that idea is beautiful. (laughs) The reality is not. The reality is that my identity, my, uh, my love, my uh, transness, my existence is constantly a debatable topic, right? And like, I don't think anyone wins there. The people who disagree with me will always disagree with me. The people who are on my side will always be on my side, but I am always in the middle as a punching bag back and forth between these people, right? And that that doesn't i don't think anyone wins and and i say that because i what i think ends up happening is everyone eventually goes their own way and you f- you form some friendships right where people are more willing to like go outside of their quote-unquote comfort zone and be friends with you or have you over with their children. You know, like, they're taking these giant risks to, like, do this life with you. But, like, I say it like that because that's how it feels. And so nobody wins. And eventually, the people who are in the middle leave. And then you're left with a bunch of people debating with one another whether to include people who aren't even there. Or a few people who stay because they've created such strong bonds. But I think some of that is like a, is like this weird trauma bond that is like, Hey, we've been through so much together that I can't leave. And, and I don't think that that's healthy for, for a person like me. I think that those spaces should still exist, but not for LGBTQ folk. I think LGBTQ folk should be able to go up to a place where they fully and 100% have zero questions whether or not you are uh, welcome at a church. And that welcomeness should have no caveats. That welcomeness should have no people in that church that are going to uh, disagree with whether or not you are allowed to be here. Because those are the folks actually who should be, if they are in the church, they should be very small and you're the one who should be on the table, right? You're, that's, that's actually uh, why in, at Zao, like radical inclusion, that's one of our core values. Radical inclusion to me means holding up the most marginalized. So whether or not I agree or disagree with whatever, whatever, I'm gonna hold up the most marginalized in this situation and make sure that all of our programming, all of our uh, discussions, all of the things that we do will be catered to the most marginalized. And that will never be a person at this point who has uh, a quote-unquote disagreement with the inclusion of LGBTQ folk.
so it's about who who has power, who has priority, who is being protected. Yes. And in those conversations where queer people are queer people's identity is up for debate, queer folks are not protected and the folks who want to have a right to believe and say and preach and teach that queer people are condemned to hell they're protected more by saying like well, we're not going to we're going to make sure that you're included here even though you're causing harm yes and so kind of treating everyone as though they're coming in with the same power and the same consequences is really disingenuous mm-hmm. and so it, it sounds like what you're advocating for is that like queer people it's you know queer people should have um affinity spaces surely but also like unequivocally affirming because that's the other thing is like some people use welcoming Welcoming, you're right that's like a really you're right but like yes celebratory god made you this way on purpose because you are beloved and beautiful and holy and those parts of you are holy yes and if cishet people want to go off somewhere and debate it yeah they can do that on their own damn time exactly yes without without me having to be present Yes. For a conversation about my worth and value and humanity. With some allies who have really good intentions. And have up, done their work. And who've done their work and want to support me. And like those folks existed in that church. But go, you all go have that discussion and leave me the hell out of this. Like I want to just like love Jesus and do good ministry and be a part of church. That's it. I, leave me alone. Let me do what I need to do. You all go have that conversation because I'm sick of having it. So I know that these are very different experiences in your life, but I just want to put out there that this sounds a little bit like how you feel about um, white-led conversations about racial justice oh, and man. <laughs> the mandatory um, discussions that you have to be in as a black person a lot. Oh, leave me out of those discussions at work, at schools. Like, y'all have work to do. I have my own work to do, like I said at the beginning, right? I have privileges too. But the work that I need to do is fundamentally different than your work. And so leave me out of the equity and inclusion, diversity trainings. The first thing that should be said is, hi, are you a person of color that has thought at all about being a person of color in the United States of America? Great, you passed this class. Here are snacks on us. We, we, we catered in barbecue. Please go have lunch. Then, hello, rest of you white people, whether or not you've done the work or not, welcome to the equity and inclusion training. Leave me out of it. Like, and, and if there are work that like, we need to do, because I, again, I think that because of internalized uh, anti-blackness, uh, internalized you know, white supremacy that, that people of color also have, like I, that exists for us too, we have work to do, but it is different. It is fundamentally different, and I would like to do that work uh, rather than the, the basic work that usual equity and inclusion trainings have. Yeah. And so I, you know, I just, I feel like, again, that's a power dynamic and, and who's affected and who are we prioritizing here? Because the, even in those, uh, equity, inclusion, diversity trainings, even in the, you know, LGBTQ discussion at church, the, the perspective and the personhood that's always being privileged is the dominant one. Absolutely. And like, and, and even if you have black people who are in charge of that training, 
you put b- the only black people in your organization in charge of that training. Like, how dare you? Like, they had to do the work. Then we're, we're perpetuating the exact thing that is, is like white supremacy, right? And, and that's, that's the thing that we don't, we don't think about. We're like, well, but it was run by, by you. And it's like, I'm not in charge of all of people's learning. You can do that outside. You can do that with one another. Leave me out of it. And, you know, I just want to say, (laughs) for anybody who doesn't know you, that you also spend an inordinate amount of time educating people on issues of race, of uh, gender, of sexuality. Um, You know, you do a lot of that work, but it's that that difference between, you know, expectation, um, forcing somebody into a corner to, for the benefit of someone else's, like a privileged someone else's learning. Yes. Um, you know, where your identity is a, is a, becomes a tool for someone who has more power and privilege than you do. Um, but, uh, but like I said, you actually, <laughs> in the avenues that you have control over that you can consent to, you actually spend a shitload of energy well, yeah. educating people, bringing people along. Because it, when I met you, you were actually a really big advocate for some of these spaces because you really believe in people. Yeah. And you said, how are they going to learn? Like, people have to have opportunities to learn. Yes. Your opinion has just changed about um, what can be sacrificed for other people's learning. Yeah, and and that's really what it comes down to is like, do I have the capacity? Mm-hmm. Not are you asking me to have, like, I want to come up with whether I have the capacity to have these conversations anymore. I get that say. Because I think what, what supremacy does or what, what, like, oppression does is constantly asking that of the oppressed, right? Because Demanding, really, right? Yeah, we have to live it. Other people don't, and so it's it's so often that we are the ones that are educating folks. And I have said one hundred percent, like it. I think it is it is part of my role, specifically um, my spiritual role, to be that for people. Uh, and so I'm more apt to do that in churches <laughs> and things like that. I have less. I have less uh, Fs to give at work, uh, sometimes at this point that isn't, uh, in around church. But I think that again, it's like, I want to have consent. I love that you were, you use that word because I want to know that I have the, the capacity to give that today. Right. Or I have the capacity to give that, uh, training in a month. Right. Like those are the things that I want consent and and to to look at myself and say, do you actually have the emotional capacity to do this? And that's very different when you are in an intimate setting like a church where these are supposed to be your family members. These are supposed to be people who know you and love you. And you're constantly having to output that. That is a completely different set of of um, emotional uh, giving that you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you in particular with a lot of intersecting identities, you know, you mentioned at the top, you are black, you are a trans man, you identify as queer, you are a Christian pastor on top of the fact that you are a social worker, a professor, um, you specialize in, uh, in addiction and substance abuse counseling. Um, you have that background, like all these things. I just, we, I feel like you get, you get a request to speak on a panel every 30 seconds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, Like in the span of this podcast, you now have nine requests in your <laughs> inbox. I and, hope so. And 
you know, obviously a lot of that is about your expertise and your eloquence and your willingness to teach. And some of that is about people, uh, really saying, oh, you, you check some of these boxes for us yes, and, you know, and then expect you to, to come in and speak for everybody with all of your, all of your intersecting identities. Yes. And I mean, and so often it's like, we have black people to do, to do, Ooh, we need a, uh, we've been doing this, uh, planning for seven months. Oops. We didn't have a trans person. Oh, call Cameron. Yep. Right. Like that's a, such a different thing than saying like, Hey, we're really trying to like do our best and have voices here. Uh, and so at the beginning, we're going to start off, we're going to call Cameron, you know, like, I think that that is totally different. Um, and I, I just want to, to, to say, because I have done so much work, um, within myself, I, I think I have more capacity to have more empathy for people who are different than me. One, because it's my family. It's my where I grew up. It's all these people, right, that I truly care about that <laughs> we don't, not all of us speak anymore, right? And so, like, I've done a lot of work to make myself healthy and to position myself around people who are healthy. So I think that I have some capacity um, because I'm now, I'm in safer places. I have the resources. I have people around me who love me and care about me and see me for exactly who I am. And so I have some capacity that other folks don't. And so if I if I can be a person who is upfront and uh, one of the louder people for the the inclusion for the the liberation of other people, I'm going to always do that. Um, and and that's because I'm well resourced, and that's a privilege. And so that because I have that privilege, I then want to use um, that extra capacity that I have to help others. Well, you know, so I, we started this conversation with the question, how does all of that impact how you read the Bible? And oh, we've actually right. we've actually not even touched on scripture. And um, and we don't, uh, you know, I think I think we have a, a broad picture painted now of of your experiences let's let's just go in deep on one particular scripture um i know that a scripture that you um care about that has impacted you is the prodigal son so you picked that story to talk about um let's just let's just go deep in on that story and and you can kind of talk us through how your identity shapes your reading and understanding of that story now versus, you know, some traditional readings or ways that you've been taught about it before. So can you, can you tell us that story, um, invite us into that scripture and then we'll kind of tear it apart together. Yeah. So the story of the prodigal son, uh, has taken many different meanings for me and that's really why I brought this one up. Um, and so the story goes like there's a son and the son says, dad, give me what is owed of me. Right. I, I know I have some, some money coming my way. Would you give me this money? And dad's like, I guess. So he splits his kingdom, uh, and gives, gives the son what, what is quote unquote owed of him. And that son takes it and goes to a faraway land. Let's call it the city, um, a faraway land and uses all of the money. We actually don't know exactly what he used all that money on, but he ends up working uh, to feed pigs and is sitting here saying, I'm so hungry that 
I don't even have what these pigs have. And so he looks at himself in the mirror and says, I'm, I'm using some of my story. Do you see how I do that? <laughs> he looks at himself in the mirror and says, oh, okay, who are, you? who are you? You used to be this other person, and I know what I need to do. I need to go ahead and tell my dad. I will march up to my dad, and I will say, I do not deserve to be your son any longer. I have squandered everything. I am wretched as a rag, and I want to just be your hired hand. Aha, this is my plan. So then the son goes, and he starts to march on home in his shame, right? And far off in the... Di- then then the, the Bible story kind of switches to dad's perspective, right? And In my head. then So dad is literally standing, waiting for this son to return. And so as the son marches toward the dad, far off in the distance, dad starts running toward the son. And the, when they meet, because now they're cutely running at each other, right? When they meet... The son says, Dad, I do not deserve to either be your son. And the dad grabs the son and squeezes that son and says, you are home. And he yells to his hired hands because the son didn't even really, well, okay, in the Bible, the, the, they let him say the whole thing, okay? I, I should be your hired hand. He says, nonsense. And so the dad says, nonsense, and calls out to the hired hands and says, get the best cow, I assume. Calf. Fattened calf. Fattened calf. Get the best fattened calf we have. We're eating veal. And, and, <laughs> and get the best cloak that we own and put that cloak on my son. My son has returned. Meanwhile, there's another brother. That brother is like, what? I have done everything right. And dad, you're going to have a freaking party for, for this mess up? Because I've been here working the kingdom. I didn't squander away with all, I didn't squander away our money on sexual immorality, aka prostitutes, because that's what it says in the Bible. And I, I've done everything. And the dad looks at that, that other son and says, your brother has returned. We're having a party. That's it. Like, that's, that's the story. That's like my version of the story. All right. Well, so tell tell us what that means to you. Sure. I think I kind of imported a little bit of my feelings right on there. You know, it's <laughs> well. I'll, I'll, I I like your flair. Yeah. So I I say it that way because years ago, I that is how I would have interpreted that story. I would have said that I was the prodigal son, that I, I wretched rag, wretched rag eating wanting to eat with the pigs because I had nothing I was at a time in my life again like you know drugs and alcohol and depression and all these things and all I knew was I just needed to get back to Jesus and and it was so important for me to have this story to be able to know that Jesus was literally standing there scanning and waiting for me to come back and and when I decided to Jesus ran to me right that was really, really, really important for me because a lot of people, I've heard this story used as like, well, God will always wait for you, but you have to do the, mm. the returning, right? Um, but in, in this story, the, the father runs to the son and is actively watching and looking for the son to return. 
And, and that was really important for me because that was an active God who was actively seeking me out, who actively wanted me close. And it wasn't all on you. It wasn't all on me because it was so scary to be in the pig pit, right? Yeah. That it felt so overwhelming to get out of there. But God was always looking for me. And there's that, that image of like the, the like, footprints that's a really cute thing Mm -hmm. that christians you know here's where i walked and here's where you walked and here's where i carried you right and then there's another one where it's like there's some drag marks (laughs) and that's my that's my story where it's like and then jesus this is where you drug me you know like and not like yeah using drugs but like you dragged Dragged. me (laughs) um and so (laughs) and so like but that was that was a jesus that i needed at a time and now I see this story so differently. Yeah, I mean, well, so some of the, though from the way that you're talking, it sounds like some of it still feels really important and yes. really validating, and some of it feels extremely toxic. Yes. So are there any pieces of that original interpretation, before you get into your kind of different perspective now, are there any pieces of that that you hold on to as true that you think there is a healthy way to tell this story? Yeah with some of those elements. Yeah. Well, and, and I think I think the way that I told it is is the the healthiest version I can do, mm-hmm. right? Because the because I need that active God. I need that that God that is in it with me that is always searching for the lost, right? And I say the lost and that's like maybe a, a weird evangelical word that, you know, I don't mean it in that way, but like people who don't know what to do. Like people who are just trying to find a path towards health and healing and goodness and and happiness and hope and whatever the thing that you are missing. God is actively searching for ways to get that to you and is running towards you all the time waiting and so excited to throw a party when you become the healthiest version of you and for me that meant coming back not as a filthy rag and having God be like I don't want to hear any of that you are not a filthy rag you are good and you know one of the maybe this is too much info, but one of the reasons why I love being a person who follows in the Wesleyan tradition now is when I grew up, I grew up evangelical, an evangelical Christian where it was like super conservative and everything we talked about was how we were filthy rags. We were filthy rags. We could only be looked at by God because we had Jesus who would stand in front of us, just like covering us up, right? And and when I was introduced to Wesleyan theology, the idea of like original blessing or the idea that we are good from the beginning, like in creation, God said, and it was good. And then God looked at, at humanity and said it was very good. That was just revolutionary to me because I have dealt with shame and all these things for so long about how I am just a filthy piece of garbage. And to think though, that God is just waiting to just say, you are not garbage. You were good from the beginning. And I've been waiting and running toward you this whole time. So excited to tell you that you are good. Like that, that is the piece that I hold on to in this interpretation that I still need today because I think I still have some internalized shame around some of the things that I I don't think I have that every day, but sometimes it pops up here and there. And so I need that God that's running toward me to tell me that I'm good. 
Well, and I think that there are a lot of people that still tell this story and say, I'm the prodigal son or someone I love is the prodigal son. We need a way to experience this story and identify with that, that kid who leaves and comes back. And I think that, that there's a very big distinction between saying that kid feels like a piece of shit that comes home and, and dad sees him and says, you've always been good versus the story interpreting that kid as a piece of shit yes. and saying, well, God, you know, the father loves a piece of shit anyway. Yes. Like those are really different interpretations. And I think that a lot of us have felt like garbage. Um, but there's a difference between feeling like garbage and being told by the church that you are garbage mm. and should feel like garbage mm. and you should be grateful, mm. um, that, that God loves you even though you're garbage. Um, and that's, you know, I think a one way to redeem this story is is to really emphasize what you're talking about. That, you know, you know that I'm obsessed with um, Dan Harmon and the story circle. <laughs> yes, and, yes. And um, John Campbell and uh, Joseph Campbell and the, the myth, the cycles of storytelling and myth. Anyway, um, the idea usually is that you, there is a main character who goes on an adventure um, and then the end of the story is always returning home mm-hmm. changed and so like the change here isn't isn't god isn't you know the older sibling whatever it isn't even that the the son has like redeemed himself now the change is that the son is finally able to see himself the way the father has always seen him yeah, yeah. and i think that's a way to redeem this story and still identify with the with the one who had to leave yeah to say like i did i did need to leave this beautiful idyllic home yep Sorry, older sibling, you you actually were the better off one because you were able to fit in here all along. Yep. But I needed to find my own way. And now that I'm back, yeah, let's celebrate. Yep. But but that's no longer the character that you identify with most in the story, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's it's a it's a weird thing where that that was so important to me. Um, it's still, I guess, like as we're talking, I'm like, dang, this still is really important to me. Um, but now I I'm sick of being seen as the prodigal, right? Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that I ran away and squandered all my things and had to crawl back if if we used a like a, a less generous interpretation, yeah. right? Um, because of course everybody would identify with that and be like, "Oh, you did. Oh, that's so beautiful. What a beautiful story." But actually, like I'm I'm the father. I'm the father waiting for the church to come back to Jesus. I'm the father who is waiting with my arms open that wants to run to some of my like family members who um, I think are being harmful and spewing harmful rhetoric to everyone around them around LGBTQ inclusion. I want to run to them and hold them and say, you are back. You finally found Jesus out there and I'm so excited to like be back with you. You're the prodigal. The church has turned away. The church, the big C church, has has done so much harm and is no longer, in my opinion, the type of church that I saw and that I see when I'm now what did what the question was like, how do you now interpret the Bible? Right? I see a brown skin revolutionary Jesus who showed up to the margins, to the people who the church was harming and pushing aside and he went to the margins and started a revolution 
to speak truth to power, to say that people who are like elite, uh, elite Christians, you know, at the time it wasn't like that, but like the elite, religious elite who are harming individuals, we are going to start a revolution with the margins and show what the church should actually be. That's the Jesus that I see. That's the lens that I read the Bible. And that's now a totally different Jesus than I ever, ever grew up seeing and hearing in church. I saw a like, you know, anyway. So the, the point is, is that the church now is hurting people. We have evidence of this. Something that, you know, I, I don't want to rag on my family members too much, but something that they constantly bring up is the, the, the fruit of the faith, right? Well, we'll see what kind of fruit comes of this lifestyle. Well, let me tell you the fruit that the church is doing now. A large amount of LGBTQ youth are on the street, uh, homeless, because they're kicked out of, ch- of Christian homes. And a large amount of, of youth who unfortunately die of suicide are LGBTQ youth who were Christians. That is a fruit, stinky, stinky fruit of the church in which exists today. And so if we are looking at the fruit of what the church is doing, we, I have friends who don't want to be a part of the church. I almost didn't want to be a part of the church. People are deconstructing left and right about, of, of Christianity, calling themselves ex-evangelicals. Like all sorts of things are happening because the church has hurt so many people. That sounds a lot like sitting in pig slop to me. And so what I believe to be true is that God is wanting all things to be reconciled, right? And whether that, I don't like the word reconciliation. I want more transformative, you know, kind of like justice-minded ways of being. But that is recognizing harm and actively, actively doing something about the harm, repairing the harm, and then setting up systems that are completely and utterly different than what has been. That, I believe, is what Jesus wants, what God wants. And I believe that I am, I am the Father, waiting with binoculars, hoping, hoping that the church comes back. Uh, they're not yet. And I will work in a world, you know, through Zao, through Zao, uh, through activism, through relationship, to build a world that looks more like the church. And I hope that through that we start being the church that I I see uh, in the Bible. And maybe the other church then fizzles out. I don't know. But the whole point is that I can't wait for the day that you know my family members come back and say we were wrong. And we were in the pig slop, and we want to be back with you because I get to decide whether or not that's healthy or not for me. And I'm standing here waiting with my arms open wide once that, if that happens, reconciliation slash transformative justice, I'm all for it. And I'm, I'm, I'm ready and waiting. Well, and, and I think the real test for a lot of oppressed people is uh, first of all, how to tell when that's real, right? Yeah. Or when it's a lure, yeah. because a lot of times it's, it's, it's fake, oh, right? Yeah. It's like, yep. um, I want to be back in your life, but only on my terms. And, uh, you know, whoops, just kidding. My terms are the exact same abusive. Yeah. Uh, they're just veiled differently or, 
or labeled differently now. But, but if someone truly is ready to embrace the radical gospel of, uh, of love and justice and kingdom, then are we actually prepared to be the father, to mm-hmm. celebrate, to, to offer our best, mm-hmm. um, to welcome them home? Or are we going to hold on to the hurt? Um, are we going like to stop ourselves from healing and releasing that hurt and, and be like the brother? Because yeah. I think that's a real temptation. I mean, like that's the, my interpretation of the Jonah story. It's mm-hmm. just like that's really hard to do. Yeah. 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 And and I think that's why the brother exists in this story. Right. Yeah. We could be the brother where we go to the party and we're like, right. And like he still went to the party, kind of. But like you're not ready to actually do the work to celebrate that we actually won uh, a, a person back one one the quote unquote lost. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I want to be the father and it, it would be it'll be really hard right and and a lot of a lot of the work that i think i do in in uh spaces with like people of color for instance uh when we're doing our work is to say like okay i'm glad i'm not doing the work with these white people (laughs) but in this in this in this group we do have to have the question what does it look like for us to be healthy enough for when uh, a person comes and says, no, for real, I'm sorry. I messed up. I really want to do differently. I, I'm in. You've won me to your side. And so often, people who have been oppressed push those people away, saying like, well, you weren't here before, right? And it's like, that is true. And that was wrong and horrible and hurtful and all the things. But how then do we do transformative uh, work to do what I think God is calling us to. And that is a work in itself. And that's something that I'm doing actively and trying to do actively so that when people do want to show back up, um, I will be the father rather than the brother ready and open with open arms because we know that they truly wanted to come back. They truly are ready to like do the work to be family again. Beautiful. Well, Cameron, we are way out of time. Way out of time. So I want to ask you um, our final parting questions. Uh, what, when you're when you are thinking about the Bible, what is something that you think gets way too much attention or um, gets pulled out to be talked about too much? Mm. Well, from this discussion, I mean, I'll just uh, we we talk too much about like. Jesus, the peacemaker, you know, like Jesus, the like, I would call surfer Jesus, like white, uh, you know, blonde hair flowing in the wind, who is here to just like, is hang, that guy in the Bible? hang out. No. Where's that? Exactly. Where's that exactly. Did he have sunscreen he in Galilee? Must have been really pink. Um, but, you know, he's like a peaceful man who did nothing but like bring love and and Oh, you're peace. talking about Martin Luther King Jr. Right. <laughs> exactly. White Martin Luther King. Oh. oh, oh, my bad. Okay. Anyway, but uh, yeah, like I think that's that's the Jesus that we talk too much about. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's really hard. Yeah. Anytime we say so-and-so would have wanted us to all just get along. Yes. Massively rewriting history. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think uh, should get more attention in the Bible? The opposite. Like the, the Jesus of the Bible, I think, should get more attention. Like, you know, 
I don't think I really understood Jesus until like five years ago, you know, like through all that work that I did, I started to see the real Jesus in my head. Again, that brown skin revolutionary who um, was at the margins and started there and was a community organizer and like uh, <laughs> didn't do things just because he's magical and the son of God. Like he organized, he was like, I'm going to ride in on this donkey because those MFers over there are are the 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 king's you know best guard and we're gonna have a, a freaking protest on on uh, Palm Sunday right like that is something that I never would have seen in the Bible if I didn't really truly uh, open myself up to like the Jesus of the Bible so I think we need to see Jesus as as a radical. Uh, revolutionary who was actually trying to disrupt. He wasn't trying to bring quote unquote peace. Like we can't have peace without justice, right? No justice, no peace. And so like, that's the Jesus that I know. And that's the Jesus that needs to be more talked about because I think all of these conversations uh, that we have would be very, very different if we had that Jesus at the, at the forefront. Absolutely. No justice, no peace, no racist police. Whoop. Um, all right. Well, uh, I love you so much, and I'm glad that you're in my life, and I get to talk to you uh, every night for the rest of my life. So, um, but thank you for talking to the to the audience as well today. Of course. What's for dinner tonight? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> we got to pick up my doctor. We got to figure out dinner. Um, but yeah, you know what? I, I do want to just put out there to those who have gotten this far in the conversation that there may be another podcast in the works that, uh, that features the two of us on the reg. So thank you for coming on this one and telling your story. Of course. And uh, we will see where the podcasting world takes us. I'm excited to do it. Woo-woo. Thanks for listening to this episode of Jonah and the Peacock. We hope you enjoyed it. This show is presented by The Liberation Project and produced by Wesley's Revival. Thank you, Jonah. This has I been think great. the Bible has seven Thank inches you. Out. It's great to be with you, Jonah. Hey. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jonah. This has been great. Thank you. I'm excited to do it. Yeah. I'd love to connect with you. God bless everyone. Bye.